I want to ask you a few questions. First of all, top five, if one of your top five restaurants that you would go to in this region would be what? Help me out. What's a, one of the top five restaurants that you like or that you would go to? Panera Bread, right from this morning. Amen. Panera Bread Bagels. What else? Donnie? Stony River Steakhouse. I was, I'm not familiar with that. I'll have to try it out. Stony River Steakhouse. What else? Henry's. That's good. Yes. They, he tries to throw the, uh, the, the beads on your neck while you're eating and all that. What else? Doro's has good pizza. And Marco said McDonald's. Wow. Top five. I mean, don't, don't have to you know, aim too high to please Marco. That's awesome. Very good. What else? What comes to mind? What is your favorite top five restaurants? Rio, Rio Steakhouse and Bakery. Oh my goodness. Powers Ferry Road, gentlemen and ladies and gentlemen, that's a good place to go. You know, I did a quick search last night. I've known for as long as we've moved into our house, we've been there for about two and a half years. And we see the restaurants all around us and we've been to some of them. But last night I dug a little bit deeper and I looked at the map and just the variety Within one mile, about one mile from our house on Mars Hill Church Road, it's kind of behind the, the Wendy's and the Chick-fil-A, about eight minutes north uh, of, on Cobb here, um, I have many different options. And if you're truly not sure where to go for lunch, maybe one of these will uh, appeal to you. Now, in all of Metro Atlanta, several years ago, uh, the Georgia Restaurant Association estimated, this was almost seven years ago, so I imagine there's more, but in 2016, the Georgia Restaurant Association estimated that there were over 12,000 restaurants in Metro Atlanta. So try that on for size. I doubt you'll get to all of them in your lifetime. But just within one mile of our house off of Mars Hill Church Road, here are the options. I could go to, and get steak at O'Charlie's or Longhorn. I could do a roast beef sandwich at Arby's, lemon pepper wings at Wingstop, Mongolian beef and other Asian food at Thai Basil, Panda Express, wasabi, uh, wasabi sushi steak in Asian Garden. I could do barbecue at Nick's Barbecue, Barbecuties, one of Clay's favorites, Ziegler's. I could do fajitas, tacos, quesadillas, or other Mexican food at Huey Louis, Moe's Southwest Grill, Taco Bell, Poblana's, or Chipotle. I could do fish at Long John Silver's, bagels at Arts Bagels, or Panera Bread like we had uh, this morning. I could do Greek food at Mr. Kebabs, gourmet cookies at Crumble, delicious biscuits at Biscuit Belly, a hamburger at Wendy's, McDonald's, Marco, and, uh, and Five Guys, French dip sandwich at Guston's Grill or McAllister's Deli, a sub at Subway, Jersey Mike's or Firehouse, breakfast at Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, Waffle House. If none of that is appealing, there's still one that I left out that uh, is pretty familiar. Anybody heard of Chick-fil-A? And Chick-fil-A offers what they call the superfood side. Superfood side, broccolini and kale blend, maple vinaigrette dressing and dried sour cherries with roasted nut blend. Now, let me tell you, that is not my idea of superfood. <laughs> but that's what they've named it. So if you think uh, salad is a superfood, well, then that's, that's your choice. If none of that's appealing, then you always have Kroger. And you can walk into Kroger and there's so many more options so my question is this, within one mile of my house, I could practically walk to all of those restaurants and get all of these different types of food. How do they all stay in business? How do they have enough business where they come, people come and come and they, they remain open? How does that happen? Well, hunger, because hunger never stops. 
Not one of the restaurants that I listed above, not one of the restaurants of the 12,000 plus in Metro Atlanta, not one of them has a single item on their menu where they can promise, if you eat this, you'll never hunger again. Because if they did, then it would put many of the other restaurants out of business like that. And we would go. But as we see in, the, in Scripture, none of that's not true. Now, in Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee, where we find Jesus and his disciples, even a multitude, none of those restaurants were there. There wasn't a Starbucks. There wasn't a Dunkin' Donuts. Um, I, did they have Jerusalem bagels or Capernaum bagels? I don't know. But they didn't have many of those restaurants. However, the people were the same in that they enjoyed food. They needed food. Hunger was a daily occurrence. For some of our uh, kids, it seems like it's a minute-by-minute occurrence. Supper's done, and Michael's already asking, what what next? Can I have a snack? You just had supper. I mean, what else do you need? But we see here in Scripture, Jesus offers to, to this group, to the multitude, I have a food, I have a bread that I can offer you that you will never hunger again. There's some confusion about this. There's some questions. There's some back and forth. Let's jump into John uh, chapter 6. And before we begin to read in this passage, remember, John gives some, some commentaries. He's moved by the Holy Spirit to write the Gospel of John. He gives a commentary on, on his own book. Again, moved by the Holy Spirit, so it's inspired by God. But in John chapter 20, in verse 31, it says, But these are written so that you may believe uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, as he's gotten almost all the way through the gospel, he, he just kind of brings it out again and makes it very clear. You want to know why I've included, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I've included these signs and miracles that Jesus did? Do you want to know why we have the I am statements, John says, throughout the gospel of John? Well, the main reason is so that as you read these things, as you learn more about the great I am, as you learn more about the miracle worker, Jesus Christ, you'll be able to believe in his name, and know that he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, now let's pick up in John chapter 6. And we're going to cover a a lot of ground, so a lot of it I'll have up on the screen, but if you want to have your phone, you know, in John chapter 6 or your Bible open to that passage, um, we're not going to get to every verse, and we're certainly not going to be able to dissect every single verse, because I really want to focus on what does it mean that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Let's start with a little bit of context and look at some miracles that happen at the beginning of this passage. One of the most famous miracles, perhaps, it's the only one, in fact, that's recorded in all four Gospels, is the feeding of the 5,000. It's in probably every children's storybook. It's one of the first things that it seems like that kids are taught, you know, the, the five loaves and the two fish. And there's, there's so many things that we hear growing up, those who are, who are in a religious culture, Um, at least. But for some, this may be the first time you've heard about this miracle where Jesus took a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish, and fed 5,000 plus people. Let's look at it. John chapter 6 and verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. We're going to see pretty soon. That's an understatement. Because And notice this, why were they following him? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So already John gives a a hint here, an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is why there was a crowd. 
Jesus is doing some amazing things and healing the sick. So there's a lot of people following him. And this is the main reason. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And this is important. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. The Passover, you may remember, was a celebration of how God used Moses as a leader in supernatural things, the pillar um, of fire and the cloud uh, to, to lead the group and the miracles, uh, the, the water out of the rock, the manna that came down from heaven, all of that to lead the, the nation of Israel out of Egypt, that is the Passover celebration. More specifically, it celebrated the Passover lamb that was, that was killed. And as the angel of the Lord looked over and saw the blood that was applied from that sacrifice, passed over the, the Israelites' homes, and nobody died because they were redeemed in a way and saved through the faith of the coming lamb of God, of that final and perfect sacrifice in Passover, Jesus Christ. In a lot of ways, however, unfortunately, many of the Jews at this time we're no longer celebrating the deep religious meaning of this and the, the forward looking of the Messiah and the perfect Lamb of God. For many, this was a huge political celebration. Israel was under bondage and they were serving as slaves and not having a good life. And then Moses, you know, led the people out and they regained their freedom. Now Israel again is under bondage in a way, under the government of Rome. They didn't have the freedom that they wanted. They were looking for a political Messiah, many of them were. So this is important to understand. This is the time of year that it was. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these, may, these people may eat? And then I, I like the, another little commentary that is included. He said this to test him, for he, for he himself knew what he would do. Sometimes we, as parents, do that. You know, we, we can't really do that with uh, older kids and teenagers and young adult children, for sure. But for the little tykes, sometimes we can, you know, ask questions and we can make it look like, Daddy doesn't know what we're going to do. And the, and the kids, you know, kind of wonder all along. We have a plan and, and we know. Sometimes that plan works. Sometimes it doesn't. But Jesus, he asked Philip, he already knows what he's going to do, and this, this will bring us back a little bit to Easter Sunday when we looked at the I am statement or the I am truth, that Jesus is the I am, the eternal present God. You may remember, those of you who were here Easter Sunday, that the Jews were, were criticizing Jesus because you know, he was saying, I, I can give you something that if you believe, you will not die. And they said, how can you say that? You're not even 50 years old, and, and, but yet you say, you know, you, you're not going to die. And Abraham died. And Abraham is like the hero, the beginner, you know, of their nation, of their, of their people. And he says, you know, Abraham died. And then Jesus comes out with a very bold and divine statement that links him to the great I am of the Old Testament. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So once again, we see as he's talking to Philip, Philip is, is limited in time, just like you and I are. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know how these people were going to be fed. But Jesus asked him, hey, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? You also may remember that on, on Easter Sunday, this is somewhat similar. Anybody that's done video editing, 
you can kind of look at the whole clip and there's that one line that you can drag back and forth, but you can see you know, all parts of that video on your screen and in a, in a much grander way, greater way that we can really never imagine and fully understand, Jesus is the eternal present. He already knew, he was already ahead of the game of Philip. He already knew exactly what he was gonna do. He knew the boy was there with fish and, and loaves, but yet he asked Philip, so that Philip would at least have a a better understanding of this is a big problem. There there is a multitude here. How in the world are we going to feed so many people? So he said this to test him for himself knew what he would do. Now we find a couple proposed solutions. Philip says in John chapter 6 and verse 7, he says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Philip's already doing the math. Depending on you know, what scholar you read and what commentator, this could potentially, the 200 denarii could potentially have been up to about eight months of salary, of wages. That's a lot of money, but here's a lot of people. So Philip says, even 200 denarii, that's not going to get enough bread. Just, I mean, it won't even give a little bit of bread to everybody that's here. And, you know, Jesus is knowing, yeah, that's, Wait, good observation, Philip. You are bright. I knew that's why I chose you as a disciple. So the next guy comes up. Andrew, John 6, verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. You may remember that Andrew went initially to Peter and says, hey, we found the Messiah. So it appears that Andrew, again, is, is kind of going out. He's finding someone. He's trying to figure out a solution. He's thinking ahead. Philip's already doing the math. But Andrew's like, forget that. I'm going to see what kind of food we have here. And then John 6, 8, 9, it says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But then he comes at the end. He says, But what are they for so many? I mean, Lord, <laughs> we have this little guy's lunch but, but what are they for so many so once again I, this is I, t- phenomenal to me because Christ loves to show us his power in the midst of problems that you and I can't solve these disciples are here there's no way they can figure out how we're going to feed 5,000 plus people Jesus already knew that's the problem so now we see the true solution in John chapter 6 and verse 10 Jesus said Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And this is important because it's just numbering the men. So a very conservative estimate would be eight to 10,000 people, possibly 15,000 plus, depending on how many women and children had followed the men uh, to come see what else Christ would do. Who else would he heal? What other signs and miracles would he do? So there, there is a large, large multitude. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. So also the fish, and then I I, I love this, this was way before Golden Corral or, or any of those types of places, as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. You know, I don't know if he had a little disciple to huddles, he's like, you know, if he huddled up the disciples, he said, all right guys, let them eat as much as they want. You don't have to divvy it out. You don't have to say, you know, just get one first time through. Yesterday in our activity, those of you on the plant camp team and some of the ISF students who went with us, we had some delicious sub sandwiches. But the first white time through the line, it was like, okay, everybody, you can only have one. 
And some of us were eyeing, you know, the rest left over like, okay, can I go get two now? <laughs> we, we wanted more. And here, like, you can eat all you want. There's no limit. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. It's feeding of the 5,000. Very familiar miracle. All four gospels record this. This sets the stage for what we're going to see here in a little bit of, of why it means so much that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that if you, if you feed on me, you'll never hunger again. But notice the next miracle, the walking on the water. This is also a, kind of a favorite. I mean, who doesn't enjoy walking on water? We uh, had a few days at the lake a few weeks ago, and, uh, and we had seen this once before, but we saw it again on the lake. Um, you know, it's not enough or fun enough, I guess, anymore to have the wave runners and the sea dews and, and to ski and to slalom. Uh, but now they have these things where there's little motors, and, you, and they stand up a little above the water. And so it looks like they're kind of hovering over the water, you know, as they, as they go on. It's really cool. I, I, I would like to try one sometime. But Jesus didn't do that. He literally defied gravity and he walked on water. One commentator kind of put it this way. The feeding of the 5,000 was like the lesson. It was like the instruction. Kind of like, you know, look at what I can do. Look who I am. And then with the smaller group, this walking on the water and the, and the storm that happened, it was like the test. This was like the exam. So we see in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 20, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Now, the other gospels indicated that, that perhaps initially they may not have known exactly that it was Jesus, um, but later, you know, obviously discovered it was. So they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So I want to stop there for a minute. They've just seen Jesus Christ takes a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and multiply that in a miraculous way and feed 8, 10, maybe 15,000 plus people. But yet now they're in a storm, they're in a boat, it's dark. And all of a sudden, they're, they're failing the test. I'm like, oh, what's going on? Who, who is this? Walking on water. They were frightened. But we see, says, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Another miracle. Then the last miracle we see in this passage, John chapter 6, verse 21, or at least this, the beginning of this passage, John 6, 21, it says, then they were glad to take him into the boat. I'm sure they were. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That's another miracle. Seems to indicate, the grammar and the structure here seems to indicate that as soon as Christ got into the boat, just in, in whatever way, in however miraculous way, boom, they were there. They were at their destination. Do you remember that I just read the disciples had rowed for several miles? They were exhausted and it was a storm. Jesus comes in and we're here. Safe arrival, guys. This is the great I am. This is Jesus Christ. Christ triumphed over limited resources for the feeding of the 5,000. He defied the laws of nature by walking on water. He controlled the laws of time and distance by as soon as he got into the boat, they were already at the other side. So again and again, he's showing for sure at least his close disciples, 
this is who I am. Now let's go and look at kind of the broader group, the multitude, and how their attitudes and their desires contrast with who actually the Messiah is. The multitude wanted a political king, John chapter 6 and verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, referring to the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It was at the time of the Passover. There's some, there's some remembrances of here. Um, there are, they're going to say in a few minutes, they're going to talk back and reference you know, the manna from heaven all the way back in the Old Testament. So there's, there's some of these similarities, and it's very possible that these, this group is thinking, this is a modern-day Moses. This is the guy who can lead us out of Roman rule. This is the guy who can liberate us. We want a political king, and maybe this is the moment where we're going we're to crown him and make him our king. They wanted a political king. The multitude also wanted the gifts, but not the giver. Jump ahead with me to John chapter 6 and verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. Normally, if we were to read that and see a group, a multitude say, you know, yes, we are looking for Jesus, we would say, sing, sing hallelujahs, praise the Lord, they're seeking Jesus. But then we get a little glimpse of why are they seeking Jesus? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? We, we didn't see you get in the boat with the disciples, we didn't see you take another boat across. How did, how did you get here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, notice, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They wanted the gifts, but not the giver. That's so common for us as humans. God, I want good health, Okay. If I can just do enough that you give me good health. Lord, Lord, I really want a good job. God, I need a good job. God, help me out in these relationships, if you would. God, can you, can you solve this problem? But Lord, I really don't want to follow you, follow you. I, I just want to do the bare minimum. God, I, God, I want you just to kind of answer the, the, the genie requests that I have. And that, that's a good God. If you just kind of do what I want, God, Lord. Do that. Jesus is saying, listen, I know you're seeking me, but really, you're not seeking me in truth and genuine. It's just because you ate your fill of the loaves. You want the gifts, but you don't want the giver. And many times, unfortunately, especially as even Libby mentioned this morning in, in the South, the, the cultural Christianity, unfortunately, many times, that's what it boils down to. God, give me the gifts. I don't want you a whole lot. Because it's not really convenient. I've got a lot of other things in my life, but I do want the good things that you can give me. I'll take those, God. I want the gifts, but not the giver. But in contrast, we see the Messiah came to be king of their hearts rather than king of their nation. So this responds to kind of the first attitude that we see revealed, that they wanted to force him to be king, and this was the moment. He's a liberator to you know, free them from Roman rule. But yet we see John uh, relate as Christ comes back in John 6, 27 to 29, and he shows 
No, no, I want to be king of your hearts. I didn't become right now to be king of your nation. That's going to come later. But right now I want to be king of your hearts. Notice what he says in John 6, 27 through 29. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now notice how they respond. They didn't have phones. I mean, they didn't even, I don't even think they had day timers. Those of you who are a little older may remember, you know, the day timers and all the inserts. They didn't even have day timers back then. But, it, but in some way, they're, they're listening and they're, they're wanting Jesus to kind of tell them, all right, this is what you have to do. Because then they, said, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What are the tasks? I mean, like, do we need to come out here every Saturday or... We, do, we need to do like the, the, the basket pickup, you know, from all the food that was just spread. What do we need to do? Tell us. What do we need to do? What are the, what are the works? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Which Jesus is going to later show, it's not a work, it's a response. So they're saying, okay, well, well you just said don't work for the food that perishes, but you know, work for the food that doesn't perish. So what do we need to do? Jesus said, all right, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And I'm not just going to tell you once. I'm going to repeat it several times. You need to believe. You need to come to me, and you need to believe. Jesus told them not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And I want you to think for a minute. Just think for a minute. How much time and how much effort you and I spend even talking about literal food and drink. Think with me, and I'm not saying this is sinful. I enjoy food just like you do, and I enjoy drinks you know, just like you do. Sweet tea, I, I teased the group this week, sweet tea is the nectar of God. Amen? So that's, th- those are some things that I love. But think how much time we spend and how much our thoughts are dominated by, what am I going to eat next? As I woke up this morning, I confess, I was thinking, breakfast isn't until 9.30. Whew, I'm hungry now. <laughs> Forget the bagels. I was hungry now. I was thinking of already, okay, what, am I, what, what can I eat? What can I, and I didn't end up eating anything, so the bagels were great. What, what can I eat now? What am I going to eat at lunch? What about supper? When, some, for some of you, it's, when is my next coffee? <laughs> I need one more coffee to get through the next hour. When can I do another Starbucks run? Uh, we enjoyed getting to know a little bit more about the group this week. And uh, for Stephen Ashmore, it's a special tea that he likes. To, and he, he, he jugs it by the gallon. I mean, he's like, when can I go get some more of that tea? Some type of special blend. You'll have to ask him. I don't know. So we, we think a lot about these things. And, and Jesus is saying, be careful about how much time and effort and value and thought you put in all of this thing that... It's going to perish. It's going to be gone. The tea's probably already gone. The bagels are going to be gone in a little bit. All of this stuff is, is gone. It's going to go away. But yet we think about it and we plan for it and we, we spend so much time and effort. And sometimes when we go out to restaurants, we pay boo koodles of money for a little bit of food. Sometimes I, I get the food and then I get the bill. I'm like, for that? What, what happened here? 
Mary went to Starbucks the other day and came back and somebody had covered, you know, the, the bill for her. And she said, Dad, I got this. You owe so, so-and-so $6. I said, $6 for that? My goodness, I can go buy a couple gallons of milk. So we think we put all this value, we put all this effort, and Jesus says, don't do that. Now, in a general sense, I want, I want to broaden your perspective a little bit. How much effort do you put in the next sales pitch at work? Man, i got to have that promotion. If I could just get this promotion, I could probably get a better car, maybe a little nicer house, or I could get the nicer clothes that I want. So I've got to put all my work and all my effort into this, and that, it, it consumes us, and we think about it, and we wake up. How about for you sports people, you, you go to practice after practice after practice and you're hoping maybe the next game will win or maybe we're gonna cont- continue this, you know, this streak of wins and you put all the effort into this and you watch videos and you practice and you see other people and you do all of these things. But at some point, the games are gonna be done. I love sports. Those of you who know me know that. I love sports. I, I still love to be active. I love to get on a bike and, run, and, and ride you know, somewhere. I like to get on an elliptical. I run in the hallways. I, I love you know, being active and doing these things. But there comes a time where that's done. Remember in high school, there was a time when, man, football was everything. I just want to win that next game. Am I going to beat the rushing record you know, for my school? Remember, this is a small Christian school. We played other small Christian schools, so that's why I had a chance. But you know, there was a day when I, when I put on and I took off the pads and the helmet for the very last time. So much so that many years later, some of my own kids would say, Dad, you played football? Like, yeah, I played football. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I played football. But it's, it's just so insignificant. It was like, at the time, this is it. I mean, this is great, and we won the game. And okay, Jesus is saying, be careful. You're putting so much effort on all these things that perish. Do the work of that that doesn't perish. Pursue and strive and accept and, and understand the value of the food, of the bread that doesn't perish, that doesn't go away. And then he, he reemphasized that in John chapter 6 and verse 35. It says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then again in John 6 verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So by nature, our our human tendency is we we see the temporal, we see the temporary, we see the things that that we can put in our mouth and that soon we're just going to be hungry again, we're just going to be thirsty again, the car is going to get old again, the clothes are going to go out of style, all of these things that perish, but that is the bulk of our energy and our value and our priorities, spiritual life. I'll get to it maybe one day. It's just not convenient. It's not, it's not a good time for me right now. I've just got so much more going on. Really? That's what God created us for. That's the true meaning of life. All the rest is just food that perishes. So heartbroken so many times as we, we saw literally thousands and thousands of people as we, the time that we spent in Brazil that pursued a spiritual food that perished. 
the prosperity gospel. Buildings were slapped full of people that would come at the promise of if you come and if you pray with us and if you give a little bit of money with your prayer request, we'll take that prayer request and we're gonna go to Jerusalem, scam, we're gonna do all this stuff. If you do these things, you're gonna get a better job, you're gonna, your health is gonna be good, your marriage is gonna be solved. All of this, if you just come here, this is the God who's gonna give you the gifts. They wanted the gifts, but they didn't want the giver. That, that doesn't just happen in Brazil. It happens all over Metro Atlanta and right in your neighborhood. Maybe it's happening with you. Christ says, be careful. Don't search so much for the food that perishes. Put the effort, understand the value, and accept and receive the bread of life that doesn't perish. This will quench your hunger. This is actually what you, are need, what you need and what you were made for. Messiah he came as the gift, not just to give gifts. John chapter 6 and verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? I think this is very interesting. There was one point just in the recent you know, uh, uh, past where they were going to force him to be king. Man, this is the best guy ever. He's feeding 5,000 plus. Let's force him to be king. And then all of a sudden, Jesus kind of narrows it out. He says, no, no, actually, you need to believe in me. Not just receive the gifts, not just follow the signs, but you need to believe it all. You need to believe that I say who I am, that I'm, I am God, I am the Savior, that there is a, a holy way of living for me. You need to believe it all. This is a package. You can't just pick and choose. And then when that begins to come clear, they're like, whoa, whoa, hold up. We need more signs. Show me more evidence. See, and we'll see if we believe you. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, notice this, they go back to the Old Testament. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So in a sense, they're like, okay, you fed the 5,000. Great. Moses fed a nation for 40 years. Top that, Jesus. What kind of sign can you do about that? It's interesting, manna itself really comes from the idea, and the question is, what is it? As God provided that, the Israelites asked the question, what is it? So for 40 years, the remainder of that time, every single day that God provided the manna from heaven, as they would call it by name and maybe even tell their kids, hey, come help us out and gather up the manna or gather up the what is it? Reminding them, this is God who sent it. This is God who provided. This is the provision of God Almighty and nobody else. What is it? These people are saying, Jesus Show us the gift, or show us the, the works. So in essence, they were saying, if Jesus is not just a gift giver and a miracle worker, then we need more evidence to believe everything that he claims to be. If Jesus is not just a gift giver and miracle worker, then we need to see him do greater works than Moses. He fed the nation for 40 years. Jesus, show us more. Well, notice the ultimate gift that we see in John chapter 6, verses 32 through 34. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. You see the contrast? It wasn't Moses even back in that day that provided the manna. It was, it was my Father who provided that. But I'm telling you now, my Father has sent and is sending the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. He says that about four or five times. Comes down from heaven, comes down from heaven. He wants them to know, this, I am divine. I am God. I'm not just a religious leader. I'm not just a miracle worker. You need to understand who I am. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They still didn't understand. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. You have that bread? We want it. We'll take that loaf. But notice Christ, the true bread, is from heaven. Mentioned five times. Christ, the true bread, is life-giving rather than just life-sustaining. The bagels, the donuts, the fruit, those things that we ate this morning, they sustain life. But none of that, as beautiful and as good and as delicious as it was this morning, and nothing, even the feeding of the 5,000, the literal food that was giving, none of that gives life. It just sustains it. But the true bread, Jesus and Christ, and Christ, Jesus Christ is saying, the true bread, me, I am the gift. I give life. I don't just sustain it. I give it. So that's, the, that's the, the true bread. It's from heaven. It's the ultimate gift. But notice some more specifically than what he says about the bread of life. Jesus, uh, John chapter 6 and verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Christ did not, he, he didn't beat around the bush, folks. He looked at the multitude and says, listen, you've seen me. You've seen what I've done, but you still don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Praise God for that. What a security we have in Jesus Christ for those who know him as their Savior. A couple things I want to look at and I want you to notice about the bread of life. First of all, it's eternal. The bread of life is eternal. Truly, truly, I say to you, John chapter 6 and verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they what? What happened to those who ate the manna in the wilderness? So this multitude, they, they cast up and they say, oh, Jesus, what about the man in the wilderness? Can you top that? And Jesus says, well, actually I can. Because they ate the man in the wilderness but they died. He could have said, he could have looked around and said, are any of them still here? Do you have any of those people still here? Obviously not, because they ate the man in the wilderness, but it perished. They did too. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread of life is eternal. I'm so thankful that you and I, we don't have to, and God does not, Christ does not call us to follow a religion where I have to keep doing stuff to maintain it. Man, I gotta do this, and I gotta do this, and next month I gotta do more of this. Nope. Christ's gift was enough. As I trust in him and as I respond to his working in my heart, he's the life giver. He's the one that gives life in me. It's not me that maintains it. I didn't earn it in the first place. I can't maintain it. Only God can do that. Secondly, the bread of life is precious. The bread of life is precious. John 66, verse 51, the latter part, it says, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm 
going to give you my, my own body. I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to voluntarily die on the cross. That is how I provide life for you. That is how precious the bread of life is. But yet so many, millions and millions of people say, no, I, I, I'll pass. <laughs> I'll pass on that bread. I've got other more important stuff. This is more pressing right now. And unfortunately, even believers, we know in our heads, we know in our hearts, and we would say verbally, Christ is most important. We need to seek him first and the rest, you know, after that. But practically speaking, so many times we, we discredit and we devalue this precious bread of life. And we lift everything else up. Is it any wonder that unbelievers look upon us and go, well, why do I need that? It's not so important to that believer. Oh, brother and sister in Christ, may we understand the bread of life is precious. It's Christ's flesh, his sacrifice, his death on the cross that he gave himself for us. Thirdly, the, breath of, the bread of life must be received. The bread of life must be received. The end of this passage is interesting. Somewhat difficult even if you don't understand that, that there, there's some symbolism going on here. And let's pick it up in John chapter 6 and verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate, and then he kind of reminds them again, and died. They ate the manna, but they died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Maybe in our modern day language, they might have said something like, Jesus, what in the world? What are you trying to say? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Is this, is this offensive to you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And you can't miss this next verse. This is key to understanding everything that he's just said. It is the Spirit who gives life. He's not saying, you know, come and take a chunk out of my arm. It's not, it's not saying, okay, you need to come and like literally eat me. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And then notice, notice also this. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We see that in John 1.14, Jesus Christ is referred to as the word who became flesh. You see that? So he's not saying, hey, it, literally eat my flesh. He says, no. In John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John 5, 24 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who, has, who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. A friend of mine from college um, in Wisconsin, I was talking to, to some of the guests that are here today uh, that, are from, uh, that came from, moved from Ohio. When I was up in Wisconsin, there's this uh, college buddy of mine, uh, is Josh Redberg. Josh Redberg has now written a couple commentaries. He's a pastor in uh, North Carolina, and I've, I've come across a commentary recently that he's a co-author, and I've really enjoyed it. And he, he gave an illustration that I think will help, this, help us understand this a little bit more, this part of the passage. This morning, whether you put a bagel on your plate or donuts or fruit or all of the above, that wasn't enough. You could have formed a very decorative plate of all that food. But yet, when you go to take a bite of the food, you are internalizing that. You, you believe, yeah, this is safe. This is going to give me nourishment. This is going to provide useful for me. And it's not even eating, and it's not even helpful if you, if you just like eat part of it and kind of chew on it for a while and, and then spit it out. Well, I mean, that's, that really didn't help you at all. You may have tasted a little bit, but it's not going to give you any nourishment. It's not going to help you at all. It doesn't matter if you know the nutritional value of the food. This is how many calories, this is how many fat, this is the salt intake, and I know, I know all of this stuff. Okay. Even if you know all of that about the food, it's not going to help you. You may have even studied, you know, how does a digestive system work? I mean, once that food enters the body, how is all that, you know, digested and it goes and it helps my arms, my, you know, all. you may know all of that. But if you don't eat, if you don't bring it into you and internalize that food, it's not going to help you. Spiritually speaking, Jesus says, I'm the flesh, I'm the blood, you have to feast on me. Then he explains, I'm the word who became flesh. That which I teach you is grace and truth. And we can't just take a little bit of Jesus and kind of chew on it for a while and, and maybe enjoy a little bit of the flavor and then, and then spit the rest out. No, it doesn't work. We can't know a lot of facts about Jesus and, and quote out some memory verses and say, well, I know Jesus did this and I've heard about Jesus in this way. That's not enough. You may have even studied, you know, more about salvation and, and all that kind of, okay. But what about you? What's your decision? Are you responding to the work that God is doing in your heart, responding by faith? And Jesus says, unless you feast on me, unless you abide and take the bread of life, there's no hope for you. It's going to perish, the food that perishes, but yet I offer something that is eternal. I want to close quickly. A couple takeaways from this, and that's the message. First of all, mankind's efforts to find satisfaction out of Christ are futile. Mankind's efforts to find satisfaction out of Christ are futile. That's why we unfortunately came across so many people who sometimes had sold everything to give to the prosperity gospel movement in hopes and being promised that God would double and triple and quadruple everything that they gave as long as they had enough faith. But yet sometimes we would see them and they were broken and they were bitter because they had believed in a very false gospel. Unfortunately, at the very core of the American dream in the culture that we live in, 
much of the American dream is how much more can I accumulate? How much better can I do for myself? How much more successful can I become? I want to remind you, all of those searches in the end are going to be futile. They're not going to be the food that's forever. It'll be the food that perishes. Then lastly, mankind's attempts to customize Christ are foolish. Mankind's attempts to customize Christ are foolish. Notice the response as we close out the passage, John chapter 6, verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And then notice the response in John chapter 6 and verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Because after he made it clear, no, I'm, I don't just heal the sick. No, I'm not just going to give you food you know, that you enjoy and can come back tomorrow and get more. No, I'm not just your genie. You actually have to believe in me and you have to believe everything. You can't just chew on a little bit and spit it out. You have to feast on me, everything about me. That is uh, the response and the only biblical response to salvation. Jesus said, or, the, the, or rather the multitude, they went away. They turned back. No longer walked with him. But yet then he comes to the disciples and Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away too? Here's your chance. Do you want to leave? Then we see the response in John chapter 6 and verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who do we go to? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Praise God that the Lord had done a work in Peter, and Peter's response, he, was, he, he, he in essence, summarized, and he says, I, I realize, and, and God has, has brought me to the point where I understand none of the food that perishes is enough. So to who else could we go to? What else can I pursue Christ, you're the one. You're the Holy One of God. And this morning, I hope if you haven't come to that point, I I plea and I beg of you, I can't make this decision for you, but I guarantee you with all of my heart, the wisest man in Solomon in Ecclesiastes, in fact, showed that of all the pursuits that he went after, in the end, he basically summarizes this, you know what, you need to fear God and go after him because everything else is vanity. Everything else is futile and foolish. Don't try it, the education, the, the, anything else, all of that. If that is where your value is, you've missed the point. The last verse, John reminds us in John chapter 10 and verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we close this morning?